Uh, so if you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. This was a letter originally written to churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, really a vast region to give you a sense of the size. I read this week that it's, a, it's an area that's about 20,000 square miles uh, smaller than the state of California, if that gives you a sense of how big uh, this area is. And it's written by uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So we understand as we begin this series that this is nothing less than the word of Christ himself to his church throughout the world today. Uh, if you wanted to summarize the, the message of Peter in a, in a sentence or two, you could say it's, it's all about God's grace and how God's grace defines who we are and how we live. This is what Peter really says at the end of the letter. As he's wrapping up, he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's the message of 1 Peter in a nutshell, standing firm in the grace of God as we live in this world. And so over the coming months, we're going to be trained in the grace of God and in the life that it produces, and as we're going to see particularly in the face of opposition. Uh, We're going to see in the very first chapter of of this letter that, that Peter's writing to Christians who were suffering because they were living by different priorities, different values, different convictions than their neighbors. And their lives were different enough that people around them took notice and sometimes made them pay for it. And so studying this letter, it prompts us to ask questions like, is is our way of life really distinguishable from the world around us, and and are we prepared and willing to suffer for the sake of obedience to Jesus Christ? Another one of the issues, another major issue this letter uh, helped its original audience think through was the question of, okay, as Christians, how do we live in the Roman Empire? How do we live faithfully as, as followers of Jesus in this society. That really was the pressing issue. Rome with its uh, cultural religions, its social customs and values, its norms and practices, and its moral order. Greco-Roman culture was in many ways opposed to God. And Peter makes this clear, I think. At At the end of this letter, As he's wrapping up, he sends greetings from Babylon. Now, that should make you pause for a second and say, hang on a second. (laughs) Peter's not in Babylon. Where is he? He's in Rome. And Babylon is a metaphor for Rome and for the larger Roman Empire, a society, a world power opposed to God. It's exactly what John is doing in the book of Revelation when he Uh, speaks about Babylon representing world powers opposed to God, and therefore, as a result, 
opposed to God's people who find themselves living in these societies. And so 1 Peter is for Christians living in a context and culture and political system that stands opposed to Christianity. And and it teaches us how God's grace defines and determines how we live in that very context. Now, we're not in any details yet, but just stopping there. Doesn't that sound tremendously helpful? And doesn't that sound like a message that's urgently needed for, for the church in our own time. It's for, this, is a, this is a letter written for Christians living in Babylon, a world system that is not only out of step with God's purposes, but in some ways positively opposed to it, set against it. And this letter, it's, it's going to teach us and train us how to stand firm in the grace of God, while we face the the real challenges and perhaps even the costs of following Jesus Christ faithfully in this culture. Another important and and related issue 1 Peter will help us us think through is, is not only how do we live in this world, but how do we engage this world? How do we as Christian churches and as Uh, Christians relate to society around us. Now, as Christians have wrestled with this, this question throughout church history, some have suggested that that the best thing we can possibly do is remove ourselves as, as much as possible, you know, retreat and, and kind of create our own Christian subcultures where Faithfulness to God can be lived out in relative anonymity. Others have said, no, no, that's not what we should do. We shouldn't retreat. We need to be, we need to be involved. We need to be cultural um, engagers and cultural transformers. The church can and ought to be, some suggest, an instrument of political and social transformation. So the thinking here is if if we can just get people in positions of influence, if we can just get some big churches in you know, major metropolitan areas, maybe get some Christians in civic positions of authority, then perhaps we can begin to, in a sense, build the kingdom of God in this area of the world. I think as we patiently walk through 1 Peter, we're going to discover that while there may be elements of truth in both of those responses, right, retreating, and trying to be transformative, both of them actually run against the grain of Peter's teaching. Instead, Peter calls Christian communities to be engaged with the world as resident aliens, as strangers who bear witness to a kingdom that is not of this world, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. One final thing here uh, before we turn to Peter's greeting in verses 1 and 2. And and it's the way 1 Peter helps us to stand firm in the grace of God. One of the ways it does that is by teaching us about who we are, our identity as the people of God. It shows us how our new identity 
is really the grounds of our living as a distinct people in this world. And the identity of the people of God, Peter describes, is, is really something, uh, he, he identifies Christian communities in Old Testament terms. We'll see Peter do this again and again and again. So just for, for example, Peter will speak about Christians as as God's chosen people. We'll see today a people in exile, a diaspora people, a people scattered throughout the world, God's covenant people, foreknown, foreloved by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit and sprinkled by the blood of the covenant, the new covenant that's found in our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll, We'll take a look a closer look at those descriptions later on. But right now, I just I want you to notice that Peter re- repeatedly takes descriptions of Israel and her experience and applies them to the church. See, Israel and the church, we need to understand, are in solidarity as the one people of God. Just one other example of this. It's uh, already been alluded to this passage this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2, where God's people are called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Where did Peter get that description of God's people from? He got it straight from Exodus 19, where you find those very words describing Israel after they were redeemed out of Egypt by the Lord God. And Peter is saying to the church, now made up of Jews and Gentiles under the new covenant, that you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. And these descriptions of who we are is meant to ground us in grace and train us then to live in light of who we are, the the identity that we have received by God's grace at work in our lives. And and while Peter is doing that, we're also going to see that he's incredibly real with us about the cost and the potential suffering of following a Savior who once suffered and is now glorified. So with those introductory remarks, Let's take a look this morning at uh, the greeting in verses 1 and 2. Now, just a couple of verses, but Peter gives us three perspectives on the people of God that we, we need to have fixed in our minds to know how to live in this world. First of all, Peter is going to tell us that we are a strange people. Not, not because we are weird or quirky, though that might be true of many of us, but uh, strange because we live as exiles or foreigners in this world. And closely related to that, secondly, we are a scattered people, a diaspora people. But third, and, and this is really the cause of the first two, of strange and scattered, we are a special people, chosen not because of anything we have done, But according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the blood of Jesus Christ, and the sanctification of the Spirit. So who are we? 
We're a strange people in the eyes of the world. We're a scattered people throughout the world. And we are a special people according to divine grace. Now, my intent was to look at all three of those this morning. But as I worked on the sermon, I never got past the first. So we're actually going to think about one word this morning. The word exiles. That's where our focus is going to be today. And we'll come back. Uh, Lord willing, next week, and we'll think about these other two identity markers. But before we read, let's take a moment and pray and ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, begin this new series, we we recognize that uh, this is written by uh, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And so this is nothing less than the word of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to his beloved church. And uh, so we ask that we would know um, the presence of Christ Jesus and that by the the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that this word would have its effect in our lives and that it would renew our minds and shape our, our desires and transform our lives so that we are more uh, centered on the Lord God who made us, who called us, and who has redeemed us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We pray that your honor and glory would be manifested in our midst this morning as we sit under the teaching of the word of our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's hear God's word, 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, ask most Christians today living in the West, and they will tell you that the times they are a-changing. We we are seeing rapid change in our our own country here in the United States of America. In the not-so-distant past, being a Christian um, wasn't likely to get you in very much trouble. In fact, I think identifying as a Christian could come with some social benefits. It could actually be to your advantage to say, I'm a Christian. Uh, that's, I don't think as much the case today, and it's increasingly becoming the case, that to say, I am a Christian, could come with certain costs, because that sort of cultural acceptance and respectability is rapidly vanishing today if it's not already gone. Here are some statistics that I think illustrate the rapid change that is happening before our eyes in in our own lifetime. Back in 2012, so we're a little less than than 10 years down the road, a study was done and uh, the, the results showed that from 1991 to 2012, the number of adults in American churches 
had uh, decreased by half. think, Think about that. The rapid pace of that. In the span of about 20 years, the number of adults not attending church had doubled. Currently, around 3,500 churches close their doors permanently every day in the United States. And 80% of those remaining churches, uh, in terms of their their membership and attendance, the, the, the attendance has either plateaued or it is in decline. Now, I don't say these things to discourage us this morning, but to say that we need to face up to the fact that times in our context are indeed changing. The experience that many of you have had, particularly older generations, is not likely at all to be the experience of younger generations here at the church who are seeking to faithfully follow Jesus in this society. The days are upon us where being a Christian for many will not be a positive thing. It is already becoming an increasingly costly thing. Some Christians are already experiencing different forms of social marginalization. And more and more Christians are are just simply viewed as a bunch of weirdos. Why? Now, we need to say sometimes because Christians are just weird, in unnecessary and unhelpful ways, foolishly confusing, resisting anything and everything in the world as a mark of their personal godliness. But the strangeness Peter has in view is the result of Christians not embracing sinful values and practices that were widely accepted around them. And because of those differences, they were looked on with suspicion and at times even seen as a real threat to the social order and ethic of their day. And friends, Christians here in America, I think, are starting, beginning to experience that very thing more often. But here's what I want to say at the start. Here's the good news. First Peter is written for Christians living in precisely that kind of context. Christians who don't share the same values as those around them, they don't embrace the conventions of society and just go with the flow, and so people look on them with suspicion. And so here's a word. Here's a word from God to help us know how to navigate faithfully as Christians in a place where Christians just don't fit Notice, Peter tells us that because of God's grace operative in their lives, in, in our lives, we are a strange people in the eyes of the world. That's why the church here at the very start is identified as a community of exiles, an exilic people. Have a look at how Peter addresses his audience. To those who are elect exiles. Now, like I said, just zero in on the word exile, because that's where we're going to hang out this morning. Before we go any further, we need to deal with a a, a fairly important interpretive question. How should we read these words? Elect exiles of the dispersion. Is, Is Peter speaking 
literally or is Peter speaking metaphorically? If Peter is speaking metaphorically, the idea goes that Peter is writing to um, people of a Jewish background, Jews who um, had been, had experienced, you know, expulsion from their, their homeland, at some point were converted to Christianity. So, so Peter is, is, is speaking to a group of people who have experienced what we might say literal exile. Or is Peter speaking uh, metaphorically? If metaphorically the idea is that Peter's writing to a largely Gentile audience using these terms in a strictly spiritual sense. Now this is a debate that really has been going on for at least 1700 years. How do we read 1 Peter? If it's strictly literal, well, we might struggle to see how these words bear any significance for us today. On the other hand, if it's only metaphorical, we we could run the risk of just, you know, spiritualizing the text in an unhelpful way. So which is it? Uh, Here's where I've landed after doing some study. I don't think it's either or. I think it can actually be both. Uh, Recently, a New Testament scholar by the name of Karen Jobes, she, she wrote a one of the best commentaries I've, I have read to date, um, and she wrote a commentary on 1 Peter, and she makes, a, I think, a strong case that Peter wrote to an audience who, who had experienced expulsion from their homes by Roman, what's, what's known as Roman colonization. There's, a, there's evidence of this happening over and over again throughout the first century, people being deported if they were seen by the authorities as potential troublemakers. So they'd be sent off to a far distant part of the empire as part of Rome's plan for for colonizing the Roman areas. This could also help us explain how there were Christians in these various regions of Asia Minor which we actually don't have any biblical record of the apostles ever going to. So you've got to ask the question, how did did Christians get there in the first place? Well, it could very well be that they were sent there by the Roman Empire because they were seen as a bunch of weirdos by the authorities. If this is the case, Peter could be speaking both literally and metaphorically using, you might say, the socio-political experience of these Christians to, I think I'm making up a word here, to explain the socio-spiritual experience of all Christians everywhere, living in the world. So Peter may very well be writing to people who, who have experienced displacement. But he's also clearly, as we work through this letter, we're going to see, he's clearly using these terms in a spiritual sense, to teach all Christians about their status in this world. And so Peter is saying here, right out of the gate, dear Christian, you are an exile. It's part of your identity as a Christian living in this world in relation to the world around you. You are a foreigner, a resident Alien, we might use that that term today. Now, an exile in 
the first century, it, it referred to someone who did not hold citizenship in the place where they resided. They, they instead, they lived as outsiders. They lived as foreigners. And if you weren't a citizen of the Roman Empire, then that meant you, you didn't enjoy some of the same rights and privileges as Roman citizens. And it also very likely meant that you didn't share some of the same convictions and social customs and values as the people living around you. And then very, very likely then, you are often viewed with a bit of suspicion. And perhaps that suspicion would even rise to the level of people around you thinking that you were a threat to social stability. And this is how God wants us to view ourselves living in this world. Wherever we live, whatever country we find ourselves residing in, we can and should expect to find our beliefs and our practices out of sync with those around us. It's also teaching us, I think, to expect to have, we might say, a minority standing in the world, to be viewed as strangers in the eyes of the world. Think about how Israel's experience, the Old Testament people of God, their experience of exile from the promised land. Think about how their experience illustrates this very point. Living in Babylon, what was their status? They lived as foreigners in a strange land. Think about Daniel and and his friends, how they experienced opposition because they didn't conform to the religious expectations of the culture in which they lived. And their exilic experience has a lot to teach us about what it means to live as a foreigner in the world today. And if you look down at at verse 17, we had it um, read for our um, call to confession. But Peter talks about how we are to conduct ourselves, notice the language, throughout the time of your exile. Okay, so here's the perspective we're to have. While you live in this world as a Christian, this is your exile. You and I are are foreigners like the men and women of faith described in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. Remember what's said there, Hebrews 11, uh, 13. They acknowledged that they were strangers and foreigners on earth. Now that word that's translated foreigner there in uh, Hebrews 11 is the exact same word in Greek, that Peter is using here in 1 Peter chapter 1. That's translated exiles. To be in exile means to be a foreigner on earth. So God describes his people living in this world as exiles or foreigners on earth. He's defining here for us our relationship with the society in which we live. Now let's be clear, let's, let's not distort what scripture means here by, uh, by exiles or, or foreigners. This doesn't mean, doesn't mean that Christians should withdraw from society. In fact, Peter is going to call us to engage the world in a way 
that is fitting for foreigners who are committed to maintaining their distinct identity in the world. So think about it this way. Just as a foreigner would live with respect in in a host country, host nation, and participate in its culture to the extent that its values and its customs do not violate their own, so Christians are to engage with the world living according to the standards of their homeland, their home country. So let's, let's think practically for a few minutes here. What does this mean for us? Well, on the one hand, it means we do not assimilate, right? We don't assimilate. But, but on the other hand, it means we, we do not withdraw either from the world. We, we publicly live as foreigners in the place that God has us. That means we don't just assume and adopt the lifestyles and practices around us. Instead, we live by the convictions and practices of another kingdom altogether, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And, And as we study 1 Peter, we're going to see that that's actually fundamental to the Christian community's faithful witness in the world. Living as strangers and foreigners in this world. But as we think about this practically, I think you can also see how this could lead to real opposition in our day. So, for example, today our society says, you know, right and wrong are personal choices. You, know, you, you do whatever you think is right so long as you do not harm another individual or infringe upon anyone's personal freedom. And Christians confess, don't we? That no, no, right and wrong are objective, defined by God. And, and actually, this, this mistaken notion that you know, freedom to do whatever one wishes rather than being an expression of human freedom, is actually a demonstration of our captivity to sin. Uh, Another example, our our society says, you know, sex is for pleasure. Uh, You're free to have sex with whoever you want, so long as there's mutual consent. Christians say, no, sex is for service, to be enjoyed between a husband and wife within the covenant of marriage, and uh, sex outside of marriage, it radically distorts the meaning of sexuality, and countless broken lives and broken relationships tell the sad story of what happens when we trample on God's good design. Our society says personal happiness is preeminent, and Christians say, no, God's glory is preeminent, and as creatures, we are most happy most truly happy when God is most glorified. Our society says, look, our our problem is oppression, broken systems, imbalances of power, things like racism, inequality, etc. And Christians say, yes, those are real problems that need to be addressed, but they are really just symptoms of a bigger, more deep problem, the problem of sin. And the difference, the divide only grows when we take it a step further. And our society says the solution to this problem is, you know, education and indoctrination. And Christians say, no, the only lasting solution 
to these problems is the good news about Jesus, by which the Spirit makes us new creatures and reorders our lives around God. See, now those are just a few examples where we're just skating on the surface here, but you can see how living as a citizen of another kingdom puts you immediately at odds with the spirit of our age. Now, it's, it's likely Peter wrote sometime in the early 60s AD, okay? um, during the reign of Emperor Nero. Now, physical persecution and, and martyrdom would come, though it had not come yet. But the people were already facing social exclusion and, and marginalization. In chapter 1, verses uh, 6 and 7, Peter counsels them about how to live when those around you speak evil against you. Or in chapter 2, verse 12, they speak about you as evildoers. So they were being slandered because of their faith. And Peter gives counsel to Christians who, who suffer for doing good. So, so you're starting to see the picture here. These Christian communities... They're not in positions of power. They do not occupy positions of cultural influence and significance. Instead, they've been marginalized as as really a bunch of weirdos for Jesus' sake. They're, They're cultural exiles. And friends, here's the point for us. The days are increasingly now upon the church in the West, upon us, when most people in our society, for them to become a Christian, will not be seen in a positive light. It may very well come with real social costs. It is becoming an increasingly costly thing to stand apart from the ethics and politics and lifestyles of this present age and say... I follow King Jesus. And it's going to mean social and cultural exile for God's people. So count the cost. Have you counted the cost? Following Jesus means living in this world as a resident alien. You are, by definition, an outsider. And Peter's saying, newsflash, you better get used to it. And in the rest of this letter, it's really meant to help us work out how we then faithfully live as outsiders. How, how do we live as exiles who, who neither assimilate nor withdraw, but live instead publicly as people belonging to a kingdom that is not of this world? We need help with that, don't we? I know I need help with that. Peter's teaching us, and his teaching is so helpful, because it it doesn't tell us to do what we might be tempted to do. What I think by our native disposition, we are likely tempted to do. It doesn't tell us to vacate the culture, right? That that we might be tempted to do that if if we're feeling a, a, a bit of pressure to just back off and, you know, separate ourselves and circle the bandwagons, as it were, and leave the world to its own mess. 
Peter doesn't tell us to do that. But as we said, neither does he tell us to try to assimilate. He doesn't say, look, stop being so different. (laughs) Just find a way to fit in so things will go smoothly for you. Neither of those options will do. Instead, 1 Peter helps us by giving us the resources that we need to live faithful, generous, and sacrificial lives of service and witness. And if need be, we're called to, to suffer for Jesus' sake out there in the world. Neither neither backing off nor compromising. But you see, here is our calling. To live as citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world. A kingdom that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our distinct calling in relation to this world. One more thing on on exile, this theme of exile, and then we're done for this morning. You may have already thought about this as we've talked about it, but being in exile, being a foreigner on earth implies something, doesn't it? What does it imply? It implies that you have a homeland, doesn't it? Um, And you remember Paul's words in Philippians. We have have citizenship elsewhere. Remember what Paul says? Our citizenship is in heaven. And he goes on to say, it is from there that we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So think about this. The, The complete end of exile will occur for all of God's people, when Jesus Christ himself comes from heaven in power and radically transforms our bodies to be like him, judges all peoples and renews all things. And so our homeland will be a world made new when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Our exile, dear friends, is temporary. It will end when God takes up his dwelling among his people permanently. One day we will no longer have this status as as exiles. We will dwell safe and secure forever at home when the words of Revelation 21 verse 3 come to pass. His words are, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's our future, dear brothers and sisters. But as long as we live in this world as strangers, as foreigners, The cry is ever upon our lips. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word which reminds us that we are strangers in this world and that we have this status because of your grace and your calling in our lives. We pray that you would help us to live wisely and faithfully as citizens of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, bearing witness 
to, to his power to save. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.